Amen. Thank you. Appreciate that music. Open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1. I'm starting a brand new uh, sermon series. I'm going to preach it uh, on Sunday nights. And, and uh, my hope is that you will find people that uh, don't believe in God, people that are atheists, people that have objections and problems with Christianity. Uh, I'm going to preach a series entitled Dealing with Doubt. And we're going to examine some of the difficult questions that are thrown at Christians and uh, objections to Christianity. I was uh, 16 years old before I met someone who said they didn't believe in God. And that actually wasn't here in Prescott. That I moved to Australia. And um, so, of course, you know, I had a small life up until then. But... The world is very different than 30, 40 years ago when that uh, uh, took place. After years of educational indoctrination, it's produced what many people call postmodernism. And postmodernism just simply says there is no ultimate truth. And if there is an ultimate truth, you can't know it. And then we have in, in uh, the last decade or so the rise of what is called the new atheists. People like Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins. And uh, these are people who aggressively attack Christianity and say that religion is harmful. God doesn't exist. Religion is a, a, a poison. It's a blind leap with no foundation in logic, reason, or evidence. They say evil and suffering either proves that God doesn't exist or that his existence is very unlikely. And atheism these days is aggressively evangelistic. And you'll read uh, uh, about that. They're trying to win converts to unbelief. So the worldview of atheism is that this world, how they look at life is, this world is all there is. There is no spiritual, there is no supernatural world Beyond the, material, the natural world we live in, there's no God, there's no spiritual beings. The universe is material, made up only of matter and energy, and only rational inquiry can find anything out about that reality. Therefore, talking about Christianity, we don't need salvation because there's nothing to be saved from. Three different uh, types of people who uh, hold... Uh, Various levels of unbelief. You have a skeptic. A skeptic is someone who says any true knowledge is impossible. You can't through philosophical or just thinking about it. You cannot find truth. An agnostic means without knowledge. An agnostic says I'm not sure that God exists. And uh, uh, I, I am... Uh, I'm not sure there's an ultimate truth, and often an agnostic is someone who will tell you, I searched for God, but I didn't really find anything, so I'm not really sure. Then you have an atheist. An atheist means without God. An atheist is stronger in his beliefs than an agnostic. He says, I am sure there is no God. And he says, we can't know. I know that we can't know. I'm sure that we can't be sure. And so he has a certain knowledge of things that he's not certain of. And so this is the world that we live in and we are faced aggressively in the court system. They're attacking 
foundations of uh, Christianity. So the key question is, is Christian faith reasonable? Are there reasons to believe in God, in Christianity, or, as some of these critics say, is it a blind faith where you have to disconnect your brain in order to be a Christian? I believe that Christianity is the most reasonable. There are strong foundations. I want you to understand, God is not afraid of difficult questions. He's not in heaven going, don't ask that. Okay? The Bible holds up just fine against difficult questions. We're going to look at some of these. We're going to uh, uh, look at suffering in the world. And uh, we're going to look at uh, why does Christianity claim to be exclusive, the only right way, and, and various things like that. I believe that God intends for us to love Him with our, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God wants you to think if you're going to be a Christian. Not afraid of thinking. Not afraid of difficult questions. I want to preach through some of these difficult questions. We're going to start with the most basic of all objections, and that is, does God exist? Now, I want to preach about the existence of God. Romans chapter 1. We're going to see what the Bible has to say about the existence of God to answer this question. Romans 1, starting at verse 16. Paul writes and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, this is the New King James, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse, because although they knew God, they didn't glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, changed the glory of God into uh, the uh, glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, like birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things. That are not fitting. The existence of God. I want to begin. I want to talk about the grounds uh, uh, for belief. And we're going to look at four basic thoughts here about uh, the reasons to believe in God. Number one is cosmological grounds. Cosmos means universe. The world as it is. The most basic issue of life is if an unbeliever is right who says that life is simply matter. The, the, sim the simple question you have to answer is, where did matter come from? 
The starting point in this scripture says it is creation. God created matter. Genesis is the book. It means beginnings. And Romans 1, 19 and 20 says, What may be known about God is manifest in them, because God has shown it to them, since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes can be seen, being understood by the things that are made. So this scripture says, if you look at what you can see, it points to... Now, let's, let's make clear before we begin. I cannot put God in a test tube and say, there He is. Okay? Or on a, on a uh, slide under a microscope. But this scripture says, you can use your brain and logically deduce by what you see, you can see something or it points to the invisible. The question is, where did the world come from? Aristotle, thousands of years ago, he said, if everything in the world has a cause, what caused the world? And of course, the rationalistic explanation is called the Big Bang, the starting point of the universe, chemicals happened to come together the exact right mix, and when that did, it rapidly expanded, or there was a bang or an explosion, and this produced life, so life just accidentally came together. And so, but the simple question is, where did the chemicals that just happened to come together, where did they come from? That is one thing that cannot be answered by and unbelievers. So if everything came from the Big Bang, then the Big Bang must have come from nothing. So how did nothing explode? Right? That is the question we have to. Stephen Hawking, a brilliant man. You know, this is the guy in the wheelchair. You see him, that uh, uh, astrophysicist or some brainy uh, guy. So to answer that, he says, well, there may be trillions of universes. The problem is you're looking in this universe... And there's not evidence that supports where it came from. But there could have been trillions of universes. So therefore, it's possible if there are lots of universes. This is called the multiverse theory. Rationalists put their faith in science. You challenge them, it's the Big Bang. Fine, where did it come from? They'll say, well, we don't know, but someday... Scientists may discover evidence. I believe that scientists will come up. So there may be trillions of universes. And there may be evidence someday. But isn't that blind faith? Right? Aren't you believing in something you can't see? And so this is the the issue. The scripture, the Bible says that God, who is outside of matter time, or space, that He is the causer of all the causes that you see in the universe. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and the scripture that we just read in Romans says, by looking at what you can see, you can see the attributes of the invisible one who made it all. That's cosmological. Number two, there's teleological. These, I understand, are $50 words. You can throw these out next time you're in a fellowship and impress people. Teleological just simply means design with a purpose. This is often called the fine-tuning uh, or design specificity. 
Verse 20 says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. The reason why creation or what you can see is an argument for God is not just simply like, wow, it's beautiful. It's that there is something called design specificity. That's a big word. What that means is there are specifics. There are constants in creation in the universe. Light, they can tell you, it travels at exactly 186,000 miles per hour. That's a constant. doesn't vary. It is what it is. Light, oxygen, temperature, gravity, all these things, there are constants and... They fall within an incredibly narrow range so that life can exist. It would be like setting dials and these dials have to be set exactly if any of them are a millionth part off, life would not be possible. So the scripture says when you look at the universe and the way that it is designed, it seems to be designed for us. Stephen Hawking, again, rejects that. He says, well, maybe when the Big Bang happened, there were literally trillions of parallel universes, and we just happened to be the one in which matter came together and brought organic life. So, Stephen Hawking says, there may be trillions of universes. So, is that possible? Sure. But is that reasonable? No, it's not. Imagine if you're playing poker with someone and they're dealing cards and a hundred times in a row they deal themselves four aces. <laughs> Finally, the other players, they, you know, they're going to, wait, um, you are cheating. He says, wait, before you shoot me, there could be trillions of parallel universes that just happen to come together and help me to deal four aces a hundred times in a row. Is there any of you that go, that makes sense? <laughs> Possible, but not very reasonable. And our scripture says, when you look at creation, it points to an invisible designer. If you are walking in the middle of the desert, lying on the desert floor, you find a Swiss watch. You say, here's a Swiss watch. It has a beautiful glass face, metal casing, and inside are intricate gears as they wind. This is a winding watch. These gears happen to go together. You are not going to say, you know what? You know how this cut here? Millions of years of erosion, the wind and the rain, and they produced a Swiss watch. No, 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 no. You are going to say, somebody designed that watch. It came from, not chance, design. That is what the teleological argument is, is that when you look at the universe, you say this was designed. The third thing is moral grounds. Atheism says that we are simply the product uh, or, or we're simply a collection of chemicals and electrical impulses. Evolutionary biology says that we think, we feel, we act simply because of adaptive response to stimuli. But the one thing that that will not explain is the moral code that exists in all peoples around the world. 
man uh, named Calvin D. Linton, he comments on the consistency of the moral code. Moral code simply means, what do you believe, what in your mind is absolutely unacceptable? Is it, is it unacceptable to abuse children? Is it unacceptable? Is the Holocaust? Is slavery? It, you know, is murder? What, is, what in your mind, is, that is wrong. And what is right? What are the values? Moral code is simply right and wrong. And he said, what's interesting, in every culture around the world, from Europe to Asia to Africa to the islands of the sea, you find that there is consistency. Even when they have had no connection and haven't learned it from somebody else, there are values, there are things that are almost always condemned, like murder, lying, adultery, cowardice. There are things that in all cultures, they have a sense, they say, that is wrong. So, listen, evolutionary biology says you are animated meat. That's what you are. You're just a collection of chemicals and electrical impulses. So how is it that people have an inbuilt sense of right and wrong? The Bible actually answers that. Biology cannot answer that, but the Bible does. The Bible says there is a moral imprint from God because He put it in there. Even in people who don't believe in God. Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who don't have the law, by nature they do the things that are in the law, even though they don't have the law, they become a law to themselves. They show that the law is written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness in between themselves, their thoughts either accusing or excusing. And so this, the Bible says, why is it that you feel something is wrong. If you're just a collection of electrical impulses, why do you feel that is not right? That is good, and that's what we should be. The Bible says that comes from God. Fourthly, there's evidentiary grounds. Evidence. If you have a claim in life, there should be evidence, right? Is if I, if I explain to you that gravity exists, there's this force that always pulls things down, there should be evidence, right? So if I let go of the pen, it always will go down, right? Not one time am I ever going to let go of that and the pen's going to go, whoop, right? There's evidence. So the evidence, what is the evidence of the reality of the existence of God? Now, unbelievers will point to negative evidence, and we'll look at this, wars, hypocrites, disasters. God can't be real because of negative evidence. But you see, there is powerful evidence. Jordan stood up and spoke, and he was giving you evidence of the reality of God, and that is a changed life. Lives that change for good and that they begin to do good across every age, across every social strat of life, in every nation and race of the world, there are people who say, uh, be, when I believed in God, something happened. There's evidence. E.Y. Mullins, when someone told him that your religion is a delusion, he was a former alcoholic. He said, if my religion is a delusion, thank God for the delusion. 
It put clothes on my children, shoes on their feet, and bread in their mouths. Made a man of me, put joy and peace in my home, which used to be hell before that. If this is a delusion, may God send it to the uh, alcoholics everywhere for their slavery is an awful reality. Had a wonderful testimony, Diana Clay. She's been saved, I think, three, four months. She came to me last week. She used to uh, uh, be addicted to drugs. Said she was cleaning out the closet a week or so ago and found buried in the closet a meth pipe with meth in it. And she said these interesting words. She pulled this out and looked at it and she said, it was like it had no more power over me. And she says, I put it on the ground and I stomped it. Thank God. Now, on the other hand, that kind of evidence is missing from the lives of agnostics and atheists, right? We do not find widespread stories of people, since I decided there wasn't a God, I got off drugs and my marriage was healed, and I started helping people. But there is positive evidence that these all point to God. Let's look at the second issue. In our scripture, it talks about suppressing the truth. The common statement or complaint is, I can't believe in God. I can't believe in God because it's not rational. That's a leap of faith. Verse 18 says that the real problem is not that the knowledge of God can't be seen or can't be found, but rather that the knowledge of God is suppressed. Verse 18 says the ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Literally, they push down or they push away the truth. So this scripture says the real objection to the existence of God is not factual. It's not intellectual. It's not evidential. But it's moral. It's that we want things that are wrong. Because you see, if you admit that God exists, that has implications. This is not just how many believe that God, yeah, yeah, I can believe it. No, no, if you believe that God exists, it has implications, it has obligations. And some of those implications are what people do not Want has to do with what we want to do. Verse 26 and 27, it speaks about vile passions. It talks about sexuality. A man named Aldous Huxley, very famous atheist. Aldous Huxley was honest, at least, in that he said, when I went to university, started having sex with people he wasn't married to, and he said, I had to make a choice between God and sex. Because if I believe in God, then it's not right to have sex and I want sex. So therefore, I said, there is no God. Suppressing the truth. And he became one of the great opponents of the faith. Then there's pride. Human nature, we do not want to be told what to do. This actually was the original temptation, the original sin was, you could be as gods, you could be the master of your fate. That is appealing in human pride. And thirdly, we want to avoid the consequences of our decisions. You know, if there is an eternity, 
then there is judgment. A philosopher at uh, uh, New York University, Thomas Nagel, said, I experience fear of religion. I speak from experience. I want atheism to be true. It's not just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want there to be a universe like that. And anyone uh, who, whatever his actual belief about the matter, doesn't particularly want one of those answers to be correct. They're wrong. In other words, this man is saying, I don't want God to be true because that has consequences. This is the real issue in unbelief. Unbelief is a choice of the will to reject the evidence of God in your heart and creation. One man said, we are not rational creatures, but rationalizing creatures. In other words, we come up with reasons to do what we want to do or not to do what we uh, 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 don't want to do. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The scripture that I read to you, it speaks about the consequences of belief. Because what you believe, it really does matter. This is more than philosophical. We're not just sitting around going like, dude, what do you think? Like, you know, do you believe, you don't believe? That's cool. Whatever you don't, that's cool. Last week in Ohio, a 24-year-old girl named, a woman named Sarah Rhodes she was killed when she, she was a part of a skydiving club. She walked into a spinning propeller. Propeller hit her in the head and killed her. Now, imagine people telling her, and I'm sure that they did, the propeller is very dangerous. And her going, hey, hey, I know, Mr. Pilot, that you believe spinning propellers are dangerous. I feel, you know what? I've met some hypocritical pilots before. Yeah, some pilots are hypocrites. And, you know, that's if you want to believe in spinning propellers are dangerous, that's pretty narrow. Have I ever seen anybody die from spinning propellers? No, I have not. So, therefore, I don't believe that it's true. But you see what? You believe it has consequences. This is the problem. You, you can walk where you want to walk, but you won't like what it does to you. This scripture says suppressing the truth has Consequences. Number one, there's consequences in this life. Verse 27, they burned in their lust. There are desires that destroy. We are the most addicted generation ever. People have desires that the idea, it burns until it destroys. Sexuality. Interesting, you know, this world, a great chemical... Uh, uh, advances Viagra because of Viagra they say that the fastest rate growth rate in sexually transmitted diseases is people over 50 because of Viagra burned in their lust but there are consequences they receive the penalties in their bodies and that no doubt is talking about diseases then there's consequences after this life verse 18 says the wrath of God is revealed, or literally God's anger is shown. That's talking about punishment for sin after you die. I, I want to give you some hard news. If you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in God, it doesn't change anything. Right? 
you don't stand in judgment on things that are. You, you do not stand in judgment on gravity. Right? I don't believe it. Then jump off a building and see. It doesn't matter. And you saying, I don't believe it. That's why the Bible says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Because you don't change God by your non-belief in Him. You don't change things that just are by your non-belief in it. The Scripture says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Let's talk finally about knowing God. In this Scripture, the ultimate truth about God is that He can be known. He wants to be known. Verse 19, what may be known or what can be known of God. Now, that can be general revelation. Verse 19, God has shown it to them. That's creation, moral awareness, personal testimony. Those are things in general. And then there is specific revelation. I'm holding in my hand the Bible, and the Bible is God's self-revelation. And I'm just saying that God exists. No, in this book, He tells us about Himself. You can know who He is. Verse 17, our scripture began with, it is written. This is more than a collection of ethics. It's more than history. God can be seen in His book. You can know Him. The greatest revelation of God is Jesus Christ. Pastor Mitchell preached this morning and he said one of the names of God. God calls himself by different names because each of those tell you something about him. God's name is Emmanuel, Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. Here is God in a world that often rejects and suppresses truth because they don't want But he wants it to be clear. He wants you to know who he is. And in God's plan, he said, I will come out of heaven down where people live and I will live as a man to show you clearly. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus Christ. John 14, 9, Jesus said, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. I am God in human or visible form. And the ultimate demonstration of who is God is seen by the cross. Ravi Zacharias. Very interesting uh, uh, quote. One of his books, he said, I received a letter from a new Christian who's studying at university. She said whenever she reads of the cross, it brings her to her knees and she would weep thinking about the love of Christ, but she says, but when I read about hell, it makes me angry with God. Because I don't like hell. I like Jesus. I don't like hell. He made a very interesting statement. How fascinating to read about the cross without seeing the hell of it. That's what the cross is for. Hell is God's opinion of our sin. We live how we want. We suppress and push God away. 
The Bible says that is deserving of hell. And yet here is the love of God. Verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. God's opinion about our sin. Well, that's good for you. That's not good. No, no, no. The Bible says sin is so wrong. What is it in your mind? You think that's wrong. No, no, no. That's, is it acceptable to abuse women? Is it acceptable to abuse children? Is slavery okay? And I hope that the answer in your mind is no, no, and no, right? Okay? There are things that's wrong. But you see, Jesus dying on the cross is God's opinion of what is right and wrong. And sin is so wrong, not that you need a stern talking to and a time out. Jesus had to die. That's God's opinion of sin. But it's also God's provision for our sin. The Bible says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God. Jordan didn't say, someone talk me into it. They convinced me. They talked. They go, okay, all right, all right, I believe. No, no. He said, something happened. It's power. When I believed in Jesus Christ, something happened. The things that used to be, they're not anymore. Because it is the gospel. It is good news. Romans 5, 6 through 10, while we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will one die. For a good man, someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood. We'll be saved from his wrath by him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled will be saved by his life. You couldn't make up a story like this. You deserve punishment. I'm the one who makes the rules. That's what God says. I make the rules. The rules are you deserve to die. So what I'll do? I'll come out of heaven. You deserve to die. You did wrong. I didn't do wrong. I lived the life that you should have lived, and you didn't. And I'll die the death that you should have died in your place. And I'll take it, I'll pay for it. So that instead of being punished, you can be changed in this life and in eternity. You know what? This is the hope for the skeptic, for the agnostic, and for the atheist. Interesting interview I, I read the, or listened to the other day. A man named Alex McFarlane. He has debated Christopher Hitchens on several occasions, Richard Dawkins eight different times. Some of these major atheists. He, so he says, I, I know them. The interviewer asked him, said that you spend a lot of your time speaking to people who don't believe in God. Is there any common thread when you meet them and he said yes he said atheists always have a story right i don't believe in god how did you come to that what happened and he said the common thread that i find after spending time with lots and lots of atheists is emotional pain because he says the stories that you hear why don't you believe in god because I went to church, I prayed for grandma, and she died. 
My parents divorced. I was abused. I was molested. So how could there be a God? How could a God let those things happen? So the common thread is not like I weighed through the evidence, I sifted, I examined, and I... And what they say is, I, I, I hurt. But God has an answer for that. Very interesting, he says that if he talks for a while to an atheist, he tries to turn the conversation around and ask them about, tell me about your dad. Because he says what's interesting is that many times people who don't believe in God, either they don't have dads, or they had one who let them down, destroyed the family, abused them. They have unresolved pain about their dads. And so he says what, what happens, human nature is, now they're lashing out. This is, this is the angry atheist. Why is it? Why are you, you ever meet an angry atheist? They're, they're, they're mad about this. Why are you mad about something that you say doesn't even exist? But there's hope. God can meet, listen, he's not afraid of difficult questions. Instead, he can reach down in the middle of pain, unresolved questions. He can heal that. He says, you can know God. You can meet with God. He can change you. He'll help you. He'll save you in eternity. So the real issue that this scripture says, it comes down to faith. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. And so the objection of an unbeliever is, yeah, faith. I don't, I'm not into faith. But I want to be honest with you. I think it takes more faith to be an atheist. Right? There could be trillions of universes. Science might discover evidence someday. But isn't that faith? Right? I don't see the answer. I don't see the trillions of universes. But you are choosing to put your trust in something that you can't see. And that is what Christianity is. Preaching this sermon, I didn't put God in the test tube and say, there he is, I got him. But you can look at the evidence, but at the end of the day, the Bible says, it comes, it's revealed from Faith to faith, the just shall live by faith. You've got to make up your mind. I believe that God can be trusted. He can be known. That his word is reliable. And his work on the cross. I believe that that is more reasonable than maybe trillions of universes and possible answers of science. That I haven't seen change and help anybody. But I look out and I see hundreds just here that I can see a genuine work of God. Therefore, I choose to believe in the existence of God. I want you to bow your heads. Close your eyes all across this place.